Hello and welcome to this edition of Digital Cultures, the podcast from Cambridge Digital Humanities, an interdisciplinary research centre at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway and today we take a look at the quiet power of the archive. Well, I'm here this morning with Dr. Siddharth Sonny, the Isaac Newton Trust Research Fellow at Cambridge Digital Humanities, based here at CRASH, and with Avni Tandon-Vera, a Gates Cambridge scholar and currently writing her PhD in the English faculty on independent publishing in Bombay in the 1960s. Thank you both very much indeed for joining me. Thank you for having us. It's a great pleasure. Can I start with a tweet? both of you because I know that really what you've come to talk to me today about is libraries and archives and how we find and collect information what kind of information we choose and there's a Canadian picture book author called John Clausen who you may or may not have read he's quite popular with the under fives Um, and his tweet said Last year in a library in Alaska, I read a folktale in a random book on a random shelf and have been thinking about it since. And today I wrote the librarian with no book title or author. And in two hours, I had a scan of the story and cover in my inbox. Librarians should be running everything. (laughs) I'm wondering what that makes you think of just to get us started. Librarians do run everything. I think libraries have over the last millennia become the main way in which we record, disseminate and redisseminate knowledge. And we refer to them as libraries now, but um, over the times there have been different things from the scriptorium, if you like, to the modern digital humanities lab. The act of scanning and recording and re-recording and sending and disseminating is just something that librarians have done very well. So I uh, am very much on that vote. I think librarians uh, should be running everything. Do you think, Afni, as a PhD student, are you grateful every single day for librarians? And how do you situate yourself in this idea of accessing all knowledge and sharing all knowledge? No, definitely. I agree with Siddharth quite a bit. We're sitting across from the English faculty library today. And almost by instinct, when I was coming into this building, I swerved <laughs> towards it because, you know, it feels so comfortable to be there. And and you're right. I think that what librarians highlight to us is that it's not just about recording or collating knowledge. It's about how you go about sifting through that. You know, how do you find what it is that you're looking for? Sometimes not even what you were looking for, but what you needed. And I think that's what librarians do and I, and I suppose what archivists and museum makers do to a certain extent as well. How do you organize what we record in ways that make sense, in ways that allow for conversation and for learning and it's far beyond the act of actually putting books on a shelf or putting objects in a museum or digitizing things and putting them you know, in spaces online. I know that both of you are involved in quite similar projects to do something digital with the idea of the archive. Um, Siddharth, you're talking about a digital participatory archive, so a crowdsourced archive, a little bit of a kind of Wikipedia type of archive. And Avni, you're currently working on a digital, what you call Museum of Ephemera. Could you both talk to me a little bit about how those things work and why you wanted to do it? 
I'm broadly speaking a critic of the short story. I love short stories, the genre and the form, the way it exists in the margins. Um, it's ephemeral nature, unlike it's always meandering in and out of different periodicals, different journals. So there is a way in which uh, any scholar of the short story is going to encounter the print culture. And the print culture is basically these hordes and hordes of journals in, in, in the language in which I'm working on. They're called Rasayals or Patrikas. And they are oftentimes um, not found in the libraries. Uh, you know, if they're found, they're found in, in, in the places where you keep objects or the archives or the ephemeras, not singularly archived within the kind of library shelving system. So I wanted to create a participatory archive uh, to think about uh, the way in which uh, different people record ephemeras and the way in which different people read short stories. Uh, and, and these can be scholars from around the world, uh, readers, uh, people who like to collect uh, books, and uh, this is how the project began. And um, the project is a participatory archive, but it's also a performative archive. I think it's what it does uh, to the short story and what it does to the archived text uh, in that sense is that it renders it within uh, its own historical, its own uh, material embodied milieu, its original material context, if you like, um, which is very different from the way in which we access these texts today, which is through anthologies, through translations, through books written on world literatures, which would kind of cherry pick different short stories from different contexts and then put this all together in, in one anthology. And uh, I think that interest in rehistoricizing almost uh, the short story brought me to the notion of the participatory digital archive. What way can we collate small press ephemeral publications from around the world in a way that is uh, sensitive to the medium, in a way that is critical, in a way that involves a wide variety of people working in a different kinds of contexts. Who would you like to participate in the participatory archive? Anybody really. So the, the project is called World Small Press Index uh, or World Ephemera Index. We're still a bit uncertain about the name, so it will be one, one of these. And so many scholars, for example, in India have back issues of Urdu periodicals in which uh, short stories or afsanas appeared. So many uh, scholars of Hindi literature, including you know, some people in my family who like to collect things, have journals and uh, magazines in which short stories appear. And these are all locked away in boxes because the ephemeral archive is fragmented. The ephemeral archive is not the major hegemonic archive that exists within the kind of, you know, the National Archives of India context in New Delhi or, or Kolkata. Or, so I, I want these people uh, to find a way to participate and to perform the act of archiving itself in the digital medium while at the same time being alert uh, to the challenges uh, that that brings. Avni, how does that overlap with your project, the Museum of Ephemera? I think it overlaps quite a bit. So to give you just a rough idea of how I arrived here, um, as, as you very succinctly described at the beginning, I am uh, a scholar of independent publishing in the 1960s. And when you look at literary ephemera from that moment, which is which is what I'm considering, it is very political material. It's talking about what's happening in the country in the early years after independence. It's talking about, you know, how poets organize by themselves, how they publish their work when nobody wants to see it, when nobody wants to read it. And it's talking about the moment very much in which they're operating. But as I'm exploring this work, I'm thinking about the material that actually performs politics, the work that's doing the work in, in that sense. So not just material that talks about a political movement, but material that participates in that movement. Where is that material? 
And as we were talking about before we started, I grew up in Bombay. And growing up in a city, you inherit a certain history of it, which can sometimes be at odds with the history that you discover later on. I grew up in a Bombay that seemed very apolitical to me, where, you know, you had Bollywood and you had, you know, a massive sort of finance infrastructure and you had the city with a lot of culture, but you didn't have a city that actively engaged in politics. And that's simply factually inaccurate uh, once you once you get around to doing the research. And so these two questions, which was what does my city look like and what are the ways in which that history was recorded or, or was created, really, led me to go looking for the material that might answer those questions for me. And the thing that I found was that it's, it doesn't exist. It's, it's nowhere to be found. So I was reading, say, about the mill strikes in the 1980s, which were one of the like, largest labor uprisings in Indian history, probably like subcontinental history. And I couldn't find the material that really provided momentum to that movement. So what people were reading, what people were writing, how they were, like, what served as a call to arms, what served as a means of, you know, communicating the message. I, I couldn't find anything except references to them. And, and I thought that was criminal almost, that this material just didn't exist. And so I set out on a mission to, to find it. And what I found instead was scholarly writing that was about this, and, and specifically the, the writing of Dr. Van Versch, who is a Dutch scholar who lived and wrote in Bombay in the 1980s. And so almost on a whim, I wrote to his publisher and asked for his email ID and, and just sort of cold emailed him. And he responded with warmth, but with the idea that he didn't have anything that was worth preserving. He said, I have a couple of pamphlets. I don't know whether it's of relevance to you. Let's see. And it turns out that he has dozens of pamphlets, posters, recordings of union leaders. He has the last surviving flag of the mill strike, these incredible materials that he at first didn't think would be of any use to me. And so he packed them up in a box and sent them to me in Cambridge. And I didn't know what I was expecting until I opened it. And when I did, I was, you know, shocked and, and, and stunned and, and just I had the most academic excitement about or what was available to me. But essentially, that's how the museum begins. It travels from Bombay in the 1980s to a small town outside Amsterdam to my room in Cambridge, which is where it currently is, in a box in my cupboard, and now digitized and online. Because what I felt the moment I, I saw these materials was that there is a broader and deeper history that remains to be told about the spaces that we grew up in. And that history isn't just a question about what we speak of, but how we arrive at what we're speaking about, how we record the materials that we use. And that really is what has animated the Museum of Ephemera, which looks now from the mill strikes to contemporary movements to ask what are the materials through which our cities change and our politics change, and how can we better understand both those materials and the cities that we inhabit and, in my case, grew up in. Archives are not static, dusty places, but intensely mobile, imaginative, radical, even political spaces, particularly when we consider questions of selection, curation and access in a post-colonial context. And can we even use the catch-all archive to describe these new spaces? 
sometimes when we look at the archive, I think we can almost draw that table out that it is a, an actual object, of course. You know, it is a brick and mortar or a digital archive, which is also material in some ways. You know, a digital archive is also hiding somewhere under the oceans, uh, you know, with people taking care of it. You know, so it's not transcendental. Uh, it doesn't transcend the material in that way. So there is the digital archive, there is the brick and mortar archive, and they are objects. And then there is archive as a metaphor, you know, and same thing uh, for the museum. I think the museum is both a metaphor and an actual object. And then, uh, you know, we talk about archive in literal and figurative terms. You know, it is uh, an evolving thing. It is a thing that is being uh, constituted and that is being fragmented and that is being deconstituted all the time. And then as a community of people, as a community of scholars, we are always, whether we know it or not, asking questions about what we need to include and what we need to exclude from the archive uh, that I think uh, is almost representative of each of our politics. So it is a freighted category in that sense. And that's why I'm interested in it. And the question of access is absolutely central, isn't it? Because the digital excluded among the populations of this world are also the people who would most benefit from being included and given access to literature and other work about themselves. And yet that just isn't happening, is it? It is not. And I think sometimes the post-colonial digital archive is expeditiously heralded and prematurely heralded for bringing the force of decolonization to the archive, for uh, making the archive open access, for making the archive accessible to the people from which sometimes it was plundered from, uh, as we see in the kind of British museological heritage. So many of the objects now that exist in the digital space were once plundered from indigenous people and, and from native people uh, in the global south. And the question of access, the question of mediation almost. Access is mediation, but it is not remediation. You know, it does not repatriate, it does not restitute, it does not remediate, if you like. And and that's that's really the kind of intervention that postcolonial theory makes uh, in the digital archive, which is that making something open access does not mean a reparation necessarily. Uh, you have to think about the, the classical questions of reparative justice and social justice and historical justice whilst we are engaged in this almost heady process of um, digitizing every text and every object and putting it out on the internet. The question of access is very much at the center of it, yeah. The digital has opened up a potential paradise of infinite storage and perpetual access, a curator's dream. But everything online, forever, might not be the permanent protected solution it first appears. I think anybody who is working in the kind of uh, critical archive studies, critical library studies, is alert always to the dangers of the digital. Digital is a way to kind of elasticate the form of the text, uh, is to uh, make it uh, more accessible to different people from different planets. It's a communication technology. You know, it happens over the internet. It does nothing to the archive itself because the digital in itself is a very fragile form. The book, however, has stood the test of time. Sometimes we find books and parchments that were buried under the ground uh, and they are very much readable. We cannot say the same thing about that, you know, about the digital format. Uh, sometimes there are compatibility issues that renders the things that were recorded only 10 years ago uh, unreadable. Sometimes, uh, you know, the environment acts on the digital material in a way that is much harsher than the way in which it would act 
uh, on the archive. Uh, one of the examples uh, that is often cited is when different universities were bidding, for instance, to acquire the hashtag MeToo archive. Some of the best critical librarians around the world were wondering if the best way to preserve the archive was to kind of print it all out and keep it on the shelves. That would be something that uh, you know could be thought of in the future. So uh, the digital is a very fragile, a very inherently ephemeral form, and uh, it is also material. It is not a transcendental, transmaterial form. The digital in itself is a different kind of mode. It's a different kind of material, and oftentimes I think another reason post-colonial theory intervenes into this uh, illusion of the digital's permanence and its everlasting multimodality is that. Postcolonial scholars and critical scholars are worried that digitizing everything is actually decelerating the process of conservation uh, because the material then is not taken care of because, oh, everything, we have everything in the digital because uh, the digital hasn't really yet stood the test of time. And we'll wait to see what happens. But I think the book form, the page, uh, as you characterize it, is still the most robust form of keeping and disseminating knowledge. And, Avni, your example of receiving a box of physical pamphlets through the post for crying out loud, I mean, how can that be more retro? And yet it gave you the academic excitement, it gave you the actual physical material to do your research. It does. I mean, it's it's so exciting to, to hold the material that you're working with. I think there's so much more to, as Siddharth calls it, the page, than just the contents of it, than, than a scan can, can fully capture what what I, what I find interesting also in in something that he just said is is that category of the digital ephemeral because you because when you think of ephemera you think of a crumbling page and the digital ephemera seems almost like a contradictory term you know what what does it mean if it's digital is it not permanent is is the presumption and what was interesting for us when we were setting up the museum uh, was that we're looking from this box of material in the post to contemporary movements where ephemera looks very different in some ways and similar in other ways. So the second movement that we, that we looked to from the 1980s was 2019 and the anti-CA protests in India which were against a discriminatory citizenship bill. And of course in 2019 everybody is not exclusively printing things out and handing them out. A lot of that conversation is also digital. And when we set out to begin documenting that material, people said, well it's, well, it's all on the internet. Why would you need to document it? And the question you need to ask yourself then is, all right, you saw something in 2019. Can you find it? Can you go back and tell me where that poster is? Siddharth talks about the buried page. Digitally, you have material that is constantly buried because of just how much people are producing and how much people are speaking. So there is very much the sense of, of the fragile object in the digital as well. And, and expanding the definition of what you mean by ephemera allows you to make permanent in certain ways, but, but at least to protect in certain ways information that is fleeting even though it, it doesn't look like the box in the mail in certain ways which of course you know has its unique challenges as well. So if we bounce off the idea of the Me Too archive and what you've just said is the answer then for very precious things that exist currently only in digital form for very timely and revolutionary things do we print them out? Is that what we're meant to be doing? 
it's something that's definitely out there as a question and i think the question is a very powerful one because uh, what it instantly does is it subverts the notion that the digital is permanent that the digital is trans material that the digital is post material and i don't think that's it's quite a practical problem yet because over time our forms of archiving in the digital space have become more and more robust uh, and what's happening is that there is a massive infrastructure sometimes within critical digital infrastructure studies people study this quite a bit uh, how different caches or different versions of the same digital archive are made over and over and over again it's almost like renewing a book you know multiple editions it just happens at a more frequent time stamps you know every day or every few hours and so it's very difficult practically to imagine that a digital archive such as for instance the hashtag me to archive is going to just go away overnight but we should be alert to the possibility at a theoretical level and then think about what the future of the archive looks like what the future of our communications look like what the future of the ephemera looks like you know because all of the people tweeting about hashtag me too or uh, the movement for the freedom of palestine or the movement for the freedom of kashmir or the dissident movements that are happening in india right now the farmers protest the anti citizenship bill movement uh, with which both avani and i were involved in some ways what are the 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 forms of ephemera that are generated by these dissident movements by the arab spring by the syrian revolution and what is the digital afterlife of those movements and so these are questions that we need to ask i do not think there are practical questions yet uh, but they are very important questions despite its fragility the digital realm can still bear witness to events offering stability and community to people and populations navigating an unpredictable disconnected real world the archive as activism then and the digital home i think that's very accurate when you talk about recording what has been denied the privilege of being recorded before maybe the right to be recorded before you're already speaking of that within a postcolonial context right we don't we don't have archives in the same way that britain has archives a lot of the time because britain has our archives you know it's a question of ownership and and where those archives exist and i think digitization affords attention and care to things that have been denied that within the postcolonial context to things that are marginal even within the nation right so when we talk about dissident movements we're not speaking broadly of the post colonial but what is marginal within what is called, considered marginal and i and i think to a certain degree with caution of course that digitization uh, and attention and care through archives is a way to begin addressing that could you suggest a way that an ideal archive could be built is there such a thing is there a way that we could have a politics and a practice of archiving that would make it truly possible for the responsibility and the opportunity to go hand in hand several scholars have posed the question um thinking about franco moretti and pascal casanova and um i think in in many ways the the fantasy can be traced back to the idea of the all encompassing archive you know can there be an archive that records just about everything on the planet every movement every ephemeral activity every text produced wherever uh, every conversation that happens between individuals the dilapidated archives suddenly coming into this twinkly digital realm everything on the internet everything indexable everything searchable what would that look like 
you know, and this is something that is a thought and process, but I always think that that kind of thinking about the archive, about recording everything, is almost an extension of the colonial metaphor of conquest. It's the ship going, you know, to the shores of the unknown world. So the question isn't so much about can we record everything? Can we create the archive that is complete, uh, that doesn't have fissures, that doesn't have lacunae, that doesn't have gaps, silences? I think uh, the silences and the gaps and the fissures are also part of that archive. And oftentimes, as uh, contemporary thinkers like Saitya Hartman and Antoinette Burton have written about, there is a lot that could be read into that silence, that there's a lot that could be read in the ruins, in the disappeared archive, if you like. So the ideal archive, I think, is an archive that is constantly trying to voice the marginalized, that is constantly trying to be attentive and sensitive to that which is absent. And I, I wouldn't even characterize it as the ideal archive, because I think it's just an ongoing and ever-enduring process that we as thinkers and scholars uh, and people who deal with the archive have to always go through. Yeah, perhaps the term is not the ideal archive, but perhaps like the ethical archive, or which, I mean, ideally everything should be performed with a, with a certain ethics in mind. I think for me and the kind of work that I do, the way to make the archive not perfect, but an archive that strives to be better in a certain way, is to pay attention to the material that you're recording. So is there a compatibility, a continuity between the politics of the material you're recording and your archival practice? So can the same people who were reading that material read your archive? Can they reach it? If you're talking about a labor movement, what does it mean for your archive to be shut away in a university abroad? Is that consistent? And to me, it absolutely isn't. What is the language that your archive speaks in? So a lot of the materials that we've acquired are in Marathi and English. At the beginning, instinctively, as Anglophone scholars, as scholars who you know mostly write and think and read in English, we thought, well, we must translate the Marathi materials so that more people can reach them. And then we thought about the direction of the translations that we were allowing. Why is it that we are so insistent that more of the English-speaking world read the Marathi literature, but not the other way, that our English materials work backwards so that they are also accessible to a Marathi-speaking population that enables us to have this archive? So I think an attention to what your materials are doing and a respect for their politics is essential. And I think twinned with that, an acceptance of the fact that your archive is not going to be complete because for the archive to be complete seems, as I think Siddharth has rightly pointed out, almost perverse. How can you possess everything? It's, I think, arrogant in a certain way to think you can record everything about a people or a moment. You can't. You can record it more fully. You can record it, record it more responsibly. But can you know something in its entirety? I don't think so. And that's all right. Recall to completeness is a powerful one, though, and early in his academic career, Siddharth Soni found a beautifully lo-fi and extremely durable way of approaching it. Enter the greaseproof paper binder. I spent the better part of my PhD trotting along uh, different small minor archives in India, uh, scanning with my phone that had a crack along the camera, uh, different pictures of the different index pages from different archives, because 
Uh, you know, I always go back to Walter Benjamin here. Walter Benjamin once said that if there is anything that is uh, the counterpoint to the confusion of the library, it is the order of its catalog. And I have always been interested in, in the catalog as a site of tension, as a site of possible emancipation almost, you know, because at least we know what is there. You know, I think it's important for everybody to know what is there. And that's my interest in the index, my interest in the catalog. Uh, so what you see here, and you see that between every page that is a printed scan, uh, there is a tracing paper. I mean, I have two uses of this paper. One is for baking, and the other one is for my research work. Um, and uh, and this is the index page, the Jurat of Journal, which is uh, Sakhi. It was published between 1932 and 1943, I think. The other journals that are comparative to this journal, Sakhi, is Alamgir, or Naya Adab, Adbelatif, Kahani, Premchand, uh, the Doin of Hindi uh, and Urdu prose fiction in India, edited a journal called Hans. And these journals really take us under the belly of what is the teaching canon of post-colonial literature. And often uh, the kind of writing that we're taught in universities like Cambridge and Oxford almost, you know, because the kind of writing we see is very Anglophone, very novel-centric, almost explanations of nation and nationalism and anti-colonial uh, thinking in India. But what these journals do is they challenge and they complicate that narrative, that teaching canon of Indian literatures. And I put butter paper on top of every index page. And then if you see right here on the left hand and the top hand margin of the index page, there is a ruler. It tells you one centimeter, three centimeter, five, seven, nine centimeters. And then I put on a butter page and, and I started translating every mazmoon, every article, every writer onto the butter page because I didn't think that I would once, uh, that I would at some point have the opportunity to do everything digitally. So I put the butter paper on and then I put number two, number three, number 16. This is Nigahe, Mir Salabka, Hindustan Me Musalman. Uh, ki zindagi. So you see, these are like in India, the life of a Muslim woman that says that particular article. So in, on this jurat, on these index pages, you see these texts that I call minor, that I call ephemeral, that I call dissident in some ways, because it really challenges the major archive. And then I created a digital portfolio in which I said, this is, uh, you know, number 41, 1942. So this is my own numbering scheme for the index page. And then I took that index page and I started going by <laughs> the marks. So on the left hand margin, it's three centimeters. And on the, the top margin, that's one centimeter. So 3.12, I have Hindustan Me Musalman Aurat Ke Zindagi. I just put that all on the project so somebody can search for a particular article and the digital, the participatory digital archive would be able to trace it onto the index page. So armed with nothing more than a roll of greaseproof paper, a lot of time, a ruler and your own invented cataloguing system, that was your first political act of saying, actually, the story we've been told isn't the whole story. Absolutely. And I would add the patience of my supervisors, you know, <laughs> when, when you're doing that sort of thing and not producing the writing. But I thought it was really important. And I think at Cambridge Digital Humanities, the thing that we're doing with this now is taking it global, is using transcribers, which is actually a machine learning algorithm that could be trained to read tabular data written in sometimes handwritings and sometimes the Urdu, the Nastalik script or the Devanagari script or the Bengali script or even the Marathi script. So... It all begins with the butter paper and, and some spiral-bound sheets. Uh. <laughs> I love it. Well, both of you, I feel like I ought to ask you to project into the future as a way of wrapping this up. I mean, if we're sitting here in Cambridge now, 
2021. Where would you like this kind of study to be in, I mean, let's not be too radical, 10 years' time? I think ephemera and an attention to ephemera answers a very important question for us. And the question is, what was it like to be there? When Siddharth is talking about an Indian independence movement that's documented as it happens, that's a certain entry point into a historical movement that an anthology on the library shelves put together in 2012 is not going to provide to you. It just isn't. So reading what happened as it happened in the handwritten pamphlets, poorly printed, stapled together, falling apart, your witness to a historical moment as it unfolds. My hope is that 10 years from now, more people are allowed to be witness to that. And that the way in which we record and remember history is expanded to include the minor, and, and minor just not just in who is speaking, but also how they are speaking, outside of the pages of a hardbound book. And I think if we expand what we turn to as evidence and how we witness, I think that that's significant. So for me, as a kid growing up in Bombay, the mill strikes were not in my memory, either through history books or in conversation. If that can shift, if what we're taught because of what we record is different, I think that that would go a long way in remedying some of the gaps or the, the wrongs that really we've committed in remembering things. And I, and I don't know for sure that ephemera is, is the answer to that or that it's a straightforward path, but I think it poses that question and I think that's a very significant starting point. I think uh, I couldn't have said it better than Avni. Really, I, I, I echo that very much. And so much that I know about the mill strikes, for instance, is from the Museum of Ephemera as it exists at the moment. And it's, it plays such an important role in the, in the history of the labor movement in India. You know, a, a critic, uh, Neil Lazarus, once said that uh, if only to overstate the case, it would seem that Salman Rushdie is the only writer, you know, in the post-colonial teaching canon or writers like him. Studying the ephemera, studying periodical cultures, print, historical, literary ephemera, digital ephemeras, the cyberspace, the cybertext, uh, speculative fiction, fan fiction, you know, all of these things, they exist around the canon. And uh, to answer your question, in the next 10 years' time, I'd hope that we completely do away with the notion of a canon. I don't think it's a very useful category to be thinking about. And when I say do away with the canon, I, I don't mean that we should create an anti-canon, because that's also a very canonical way to think. You know, this is the canon and this is the anti-canon. Uh, you know, the, the, the literary production, the historical production of text, of object, it doesn't happen in this kind of gladiatorial way, where there's the canon on one hand and there's the anti-canon on the other hand. I want us to start thinking a bit more a-canonically uh, and to think about these materials, these literatures occupying a space in history, occupying a field in history, uh, and to be alert to the ways in which some are included, some are excluded, some are almost apotheosized in our, in our canons, and some are erased. Uh, and, and I want us to think beyond the canon, and I hope in 10 years' time we'll all be doing that. I think we should hand it over to the librarians because they do, in fact, run everything and run it better. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, uh, Siddharth Soni and Avni 
Tandon Vera, thank you very much indeed for joining me to talk about the archivers activism and the digital space post-colonial. Thank you very much indeed. Cambridge Digital Humanities conducts research and teaching at the intersection between computing and culture, rethinking what the humanities could and should be in an age of big data, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Digital Cultures offers a glimpse inside the work of the centre and our shared digital future and is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. Thanks for switching on. Thank you.